Well, how do you think Barabbas felt on Easter? Or even uh, the, the few days before Easter when he was locked up in uh, Pontius Pilate's prison and he had been sentenced to death. He was, uh, well, what the Romans would have called a terrorist because he was against Rome like a lot of the Jews were, but he was willing to do things that uh, got him in trouble. And so they labeled him a terrorist, an insurrectionist, and locked him up in, in prison and scheduled him for execution along with another couple other criminals in there. So they had three prisoners in there scheduled for death. And then the uh, priests and the religious leaders dragged Jesus before Pilate and they said, we want you to kill him. And since Pilate had a uh, tradition where he would let one prisoner go every Passover, he said, well, I can let this Jesus go. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong, so... Why don't we set him free? And they said, no, give us Barabbas. And we talked about Barabbas the other week and they cried out, no, we want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And so they let the actual insurrectionists go and I wonder what was going through his head. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was thinking, but what do you think he felt like? I mean, he knew he had committed the crime, whether or not he thought it was worthy of, of being killed for. He knew what he was doing would get him in trouble. And that uh, challenging Rome is a dangerous thing to do because Rome had conquered pretty much everybody. And so when he was arrested and scheduled for death, he kind of knew what was coming. And then here comes this guy. Whether he ever met Jesus or heard about Jesus, the Bible doesn't tell us. But the crowd's calling for Jesus to die. And so they say, give us Barabbas. And so Pilate, out of his tradition, says, all right, you can Barabbas, you're free to go. What do you think he was feeling? I mean, how many people who have been on death row and it come down to the wire and then they got the call from the governor that they got a stay of execution for whatever reason. Maybe there was something in the paperwork or in the legal process or every once in a while they'll find new evidence. I read a, a, a good book not too long ago that was about somebody who had been scheduled for death and they used DNA evidence to find out that it really was somebody else that did the crime, and so he was set free. Scheduled for death, ready to die, and he was set free from, from being a prisoner for something he'd never done. And that's not the first time there had been other people. How do you? Th but Barabbas did it. Barabbas was guilty, and he was set free. And I just imagine, what was going through his head? Did, do you think he walked over by Golgotha and looked at the three men on the cross and thought, that one was for me. I was supposed to be hanging on that cross and there's Jesus instead of me. I deserved that punishment. And yet Jesus is the one there instead of me. How do you think Barabbas felt? I think that's the way we ought to feel. Because every one of us deserves the, the death for our sins. I mean, a lot of times we, don't, we think of our sins and we compare ourselves to others. Like, Hitler is one of the, per you know, everybody loves to talk about Hitler and what a bad guy he was. And when we compare ourselves to Hitler, well, we weren't so bad. I didn't kill six million people, right? I'm not as bad as Mao Zedong or Stalin who killed even millions and millions more. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not, well, maybe I've never even murdered one person, right? Sure, I've told some lies, you know, little white lies. Our lies compared to everybody else's lies are so much more innocent, right? When you usually think of your own crimes, it's always, we've always got wonderful excuses for the things that we do wrong. Well, 
I, you know, I have this good reason. And yet when somebody else does the same thing, we think you shouldn't have done that. But we've all told lies. We've probably, most of us, if not all, have taken things that didn't belong to us, which is stealing, which makes us liars and thieves. A lot of people in this room have thought thoughts that they shouldn't have thought, adulterous thoughts, lustful things. I mean, you could go through the list of, of crimes that the Bible lists, moral laws that we've broken, and we deserve death. And it's not because of the severity of the crime. Like, the, the, it's the reason that it's because of who we've committed the crime against, basically. I mean, if think about it. If you lie to your next-door neighbor, that's not a good thing, right? But how much trouble are you going to get in? If you lie to your spouse, how much more trouble are you going to get in? If you lie to a judge in the court of law, how much more trouble are you going to get in? If you go lie before Congress, how much more trouble can you get in? It's, it's depending on who you're committing the crime against can make the severity of that crime much greater or less, right? So if you're lying and you're committing a crime against God, how much more severe is that? So all our sins are crimes against God, and that's why we deserve to be cast out, separated from Him. And so here's Barabbas looking up and saying, that's my cross. I should have been there. And yet somebody else is, is, is there instead of him. He got set free. And if you're a believer today, if you're a Christian and you've put your faith in Jesus, well, you've been set free too because of what He's done. So praise the Lord for that. And, and it's one of the, the most attested to... I mean, we think about the... Uh, that's half the Gospel. When you think about you talk about Jesus dying for sins. That's half the story. It's a great part of the story. But then comes today, the resurrection day. And that's the other half. And you can't have the Gospel without both halves. I mean, it's, it's awesome that Jesus died for our sins. But if Jesus wasn't who He said He was, then it doesn't matter who died. If Jesus was just some, some guy, you know, He was a nice guy, a good teacher, even if He was a miracle worker, that's all wonderful. But if He's just some ordinary human being who died, it doesn't do us any good. But He said He was more than that. There's a, it's interesting, Lee Strobel tells the story in his book, The Case for Christ. And there's a pretty good movie, but the book is even better. He walks through this process of how he was, a, I think most of you know, but Lee Strobel used to be the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he was an atheist, completely against God. Well, his wife became a Christian. They were both atheists. His wife became a Christian, and he thought, she's gone crazy. She's gone off the deep end, started going after this Jesus nut and going to church, and she's just, she's, you know, joined a cult sort of thing. And he said, I'm going to use all my expertise and all my resources as an editor at the Chicago Tribune to prove her wrong and show her how crazy it is so she'll stop hanging out with all these other fruits that are you know, praising Jesus and going to church and stuff like that. So he did. And he traveled the world and talked to the best experts in the field and looked at history and, and, the, and documents and, and everything he could find. And after his, his huge investigation, instead of proving his wife wrong, he proved himself wrong. And he said, there's just too much evidence to deny. There is so much evidence for the resurrection. And he's not the first person to go through that process. There have been quite a few people, famous people, who have gone through and said, let's look at the evidence and find out what the, you know, what the truth is. And a lot of them 
were trying to prove that their, Jesus was just another guy. And they proved themselves that Jesus was not just another guy and that he really did rise from the dead. And Josh McDowell wrote a book on that, More Than a Carpenter. There's a, um, C.S. Lewis writes a good... I mean, there's a lot of wonderful books out there, but The Case for Christ is a good one you can read. But anyway, in his book, in Lee Strobel's book, he writes... He t- well, he tells about a, a, a family um, who... They had a daughter named Addie Mae Collins, and she was a 14-year-old girl, and she was one of four girls who were killed in a church bombing that was done by the KKK in Birmingham, Alabama. And this was back in the 60s. And it took 30 years before her sisters could bear to go visit the gravesite. They were just, they, they couldn't stand to go there. And they finally did, but when they got there, they were very upset. It was a, it was a poor person's grave. So they had a, it was a cemetery for um, people who didn't have a lot of money, the homeless, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't very well taken care of. So they got there and they visited this grave and it was very neglected, and weeds and grass and everything. And, and so they arranged to have the body moved. They wanted to have it put in a nicer cemetery where people would actually take care of the grounds. And so they, had, they you know, hired people who would do the digging up of the casket and everything. And when they did that, everybody was shocked to find that there was nothing in the grave. No body, no casket, nothing at all. And they, so they course, did lots of investigation and searched the records, what records there were in the cemetery, and nothing. They couldn't find any reason why the body would not be where it was supposed to be, at least no proof of, of why it was gone. It was an empty grave, just like Jesus' grave. And, uh, and they wondered what could happen. A lot of people came up with theories. One of the possibility was that uh, the body was taken for medical research, because back then there was still pretty common practice for medical schools and whatnot to go and dig up graves and especially in poor cemeteries where there's not a lot of record keeping or you know there are a lot of homeless people that nobody's going to miss and and they would go take bodies sometimes legally sometimes illegally and uh another theory was simply that the gravestone had been placed in the wrong spot and so it was placed over just an empty piece of ground and not where it was supposed to be but of and so they went through a bunch of ideas trying to figure out well what could have happened and of all the ideas that people proposed, the, the theory was, one theory was never put forward. Nobody ever suggested that young Addie Mae had been resurrected to walk the earth in a, in a, you know, again, healed from her explosion. Right? Why? Well, because that doesn't happen. That an empty grave doesn't mean somebody's been resurrected. I'm sure there are plenty of empty graves for, for various reasons that can be explained. And sometimes even if we don't know why, there's whatever the reason is, I'm sure is a good reason. Whether the gravestone was placed in the wrong spot or somebody came and took the, dug it up or whatever. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, doesn't just propose that Jesus died and that he was buried and then his tomb was empty, right? It wasn't just that his body disappeared. The New Testament authors tell us that Jesus was dead and that he was buried and then he was resurrected from the grave. That he came back to life three days later. And our, that's our scripture for this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing. He says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached to you, that you received on which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's telling all the things I taught you, 
you hold on to that, and that's the, that's the truth. And he says that first, I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received. So he, re, he re talked to the disciples when Jesus... Because Paul was an atheist too. Well, he wasn't an atheist. He believed in God, but he was, a, he was a Jew. He was a faithful Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he was against the Christians. So he was anti-Christian. He thought, these guys are a cult. These guys are some weird offshoot. They, you know, they've got some Jewish members, but there's something wrong with them and they're believing in this false Messiah and, and they're off the deep end. And I, he's, He made it his job, his life's goal was to wipe out the Christians and to destroy this cult so that they wouldn't be taking faithful Jews out of the, the Jewish faith and following this Jesus guy. And so he got knocked off his high horse by Jesus himself who came and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And had this meeting and had his faith changed. So the resurrected Jesus changed his heart from being someone who, who hated Christians, who was anti-Christian. And so Paul himself became an apostle and went around teaching. And he, of course, he went and met with the disciples after that and learned the whole story from the, from the beginning. And so he became a believer. And so then he passed on what he had learned. Um, continuing in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So the Old Testament talked about how the Messiah was going to come and do this. And he said, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So the Old Testament all pointed forward to Jesus, not only that he was going to die for sins, but then he was going to rise from the dead. And he says, I'm passing that on to you. And that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter. Cephas is the, the Greek for rock. And then to the twelve. So when Jesus came back from the dead, it wasn't just that the grave was empty. It's that he went around and met people. And he went and saw Peter. And then he went and saw the rest of the disciples. And then he appeared in uh, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So at once, so he went around to the disciples, but at one point there was a group of 500 people who were probably all meeting maybe for a, a you know, church meeting sort of thing. But for whatever reason, they were together. And Jesus came and found them. Maybe they had heard that Jesus is alive and they're all like, well, let's get together and get our story, you know, find out who knows about this and who's seen him because I want to hear it. And while they're all meeting and there's somebody's telling them the story, no, I saw Jesus. I saw him. And then here comes Jesus. He's alive. And he appeared to more than 500. And Paul says, if you don't believe me, go check it out because most of these people are still alive. And you can talk to them yourself and find out the truth. The eyewitnesses who were there who saw it. And go talk to them. It says, most are alive, though some have, have fallen. And notice we talked about before how Christians don't die. He says they've fallen asleep because we're going to wake up with Jesus. We're, we don't have to, this body dies, but our soul, who we are, if you believe, you get to wake up with Jesus one day. So then, uh, verse 7 says, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. So everybody who was, uh, had been following Jesus, um, they all got to see him. Jesus went around and, and met all these people who had believed in him and then he died and probably a lot of their faiths were shaken like we thought he was the Messiah, but now he's gone. Well, he came back and he said, really, I was who I said I was. So Paul makes it very clear that there was a whole lot more evidence than just an empty grave. And the most of compelling of which were, was hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus when he was resurrected. And, and you know that he wasn't just, you know, when, when somebody's crucified on the cross, the Romans were expert 
killers. They were good at their job. And nobody got off the cross alive. So they made sure that they were dead. And you know, when they went and they broke the legs of the thieves next to them so that they would suffocate within minutes, they came to Jesus and they said, well, he's already dead. Well, just in case, we're experts and I know he's dead just by looking at him. You can tell a dead person, let's make sure. And so they took the spear and they drove it up into his chest and that's when it pierced the, the heart and then the pericardium that had filled with fluid and that's why the, the water came out, the clear fluid, and then the blood came after it. So we, we know scientifically why that happened, but he made sure. Don't, you know, maybe he's somehow an expert faker of death. Make sure. And so they jabbed the spear up into his heart to, to make sure that nobody got out of there without being dead because if the Romans don't do their jobs well, then they get in trouble. If they don't carry out the punishment they're supposed to, they get the punishment. So they made sure. And, then, and everybody knew that. And so here are these hundreds of eyewitnesses that Jesus rose from the grave and then went on a back-from-the-dead tour to make sure that all these people who had, had been believing in them could understand. He was really serious when he was talking about it wasn't just metaphor when he said the Son of Man must be in the grave for three days. That He really did mean it. That I'm going to die and I'm going to be gone for three days, but I'm going to be back. And then it, that meant that he really was who he said he was. He wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a kind person. That he was the Son of God. And in fact, we have the written testimonies, not just the eyewitnesses, but several of the eyewitnesses, four of them to be precise, recorded for us in the Bible their testimony. And the Bible and their accounts also happen to be the most studied and most scrutinized piece of history ever. There is no historical event in the world that has been more studied and more taken apart piece by piece and more investigated and more scrutinized than the Bible and specifically than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing has ever been so investigated as that. Which is amazing to think about. And we've got, when you think about the manuscript copies of ancient history, like there's lots of ancient historical works that we have manuscripts of. And sometimes we get fragments, you know, you might get a little fragment this big, or you might get a scroll that's, you know, the ends are cut off, and those are fragments, and sometimes we find entire books. And we've got lots of ancient historical documents of various stories, like all, all of our Roman history and our Greek history and those sorts of things, they all come from these ancient documents. There is no history that's, that has more documentation, more support than the Bible. There are thousands and thousands of, of books and pieces of books that we've found and copies of books that we've been able to piece so we make know that the Bible is accurate. There's no piece of history more well-grounded as far as ancient historical manuscripts go than the Bible. And there's been no manuscripts, no historical account ever more studied than the Bible and the resurrection, which is amazing to think about. And yet people say, well, you want to try to prove God will do it without the Bible. The Bible is an awesome piece of evidence. And here are these four eyewitness accounts of what happened from not just the, the death and resurrection, but the whole life of, of Jesus and what happened. And the Gospel writers didn't just share the good news about Jesus. They gave their lives to defend it. I mean, they wrote what they saw, but then they defended it with all they were. And of the 11 remaining, um, Judas, because he betrayed Jesus, he, he felt bad about it. 
And he realized, because the Old Testament says that you're cursed if you take blood money. You're cursed if you, if you send an innocent man to the grave and you take money for it. That's an evil thing to do. And he realized, what have I done? And he went and killed himself because he felt so horrible about it. So there were, there were 11 disciples left. And out of the 11, 10 of them were martyred for their faith. They tried to mur- martyr the 11th. John survived. They boiled him in oil. They, they abused him and tortured him. But he happened to survive. I, I hate to think of what he felt and looked like after that. But, but they, they tried to kill him. And they did kill the other ones. And all of them were willing to die for what they believed, for what they had seen and what they had written. They were all willing to give their lives. Now, there are, people are willing to die for, for various causes and beliefs. And, you know, there are other religions where people will die for their religion. But here's one thing nobody will die for. Something they know is a lie. If you've told a lie and you know it's a lie and you don't really believe it yourself but you're trying to convince other people and somebody says, well, I'm going to kill you for that belief. Nobody's going to say, okay, go ahead. No, they're going to say, okay, I was just kidding. I didn't really mean that. Because nobody wants to die for something they know is a lie, right? So these men died for something they believed in absolutely, fully, completely. These eyewitnesses who saw Jesus come back from the dead and, and touched him and ate with him and spoke with him and touched the holes in his, in his hands and, and in his side like Thomas did, and they saw and they were amazed and they believed that he really was the Son of God like he said he was, they gave their lives they believed it so much. And so we've got these well-attested to statements, these eyewitness accounts in the, in the best-attested-to piece of historical literature that there is. And, and then John, he survived and went on to write some other books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and, and Revelation. And so these people who walked with Jesus and learned from His teaching and watched Him do miracles and then saw Him alive after the crucifixion, they were convinced enough that they would rather die than deny Jesus. And of course, there are plenty of, of causes that people will die for, but, but nobody's going to let them be, themselves be killed for something they know is not true. So these eyewitnesses were transformed by the resurrection. Their lives were changed, completely turned around. And that's what the good news is all about. That Jesus laid down His life as a sacrifice for sin. That's the first part. And then He took it back up again as the first fruits of new life for all who trust in Him. And that's the second part. And those two parts make the full Gospel. That Jesus died for sin and then He came back from the dead to prove that He really was able to to offer us the grace that He did. That He really was the person who says, I am authorized to forgive sins. I am authorized to to heal on behalf of God. I really have that, that power and that authority. And that's what the good news is all about. Jesus laid down His life and then He rose again. And, and that he's the first fruits. The first fruits is the, the first harvest of your crop. So whatever you're growing, that first bunch of it that you pick, that's the first fruits. And there was always an offering in the Jewish, you know, their history that when you have that first fruit from the harvest, well, you, you go and make an offering out of that. And you say, thank you, God, for helping my crops grow. And so the Bible says that Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection. And that everybody who believes in him can have that same resurrection, that we can be brought back from the dead and live forever with God. And all of Christianity is wrapped around that central point that the Messiah rose from the grave. Because if Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, then none of this matters. That there's no point to it. Because He's just another guy. 
And, and all this goes way back to the beginning. Actually, I mean, we, we tie everything back to the Old Testament. When God created the universe and He was done with His work, He looked at everything He made and what did He say? It's very good. He said, it's good. It's, it's perfect. Just the way I wanted it. And Adam and Eve lived in this beautiful garden filled with life. As Ma- uh, here's an interesting thing. When He was on the cross and the thieves were, one of the thieves was kind of you know, saying, why don't you take us down, get us all down from here? If you really are who you say are, you are, why don't you get us all off the cross and save us? And the other thief said, leave him alone. He's innocent of his crimes. We deserve to die because we're criminals. But he's innocent. And Jesus told that guy, surely today you will be with me in paradise. This is just an interesting tidbit. The word paradise in the language that he used means garden. And like we've been talking about, that Jesus' whole goal is to get us back to the garden. To get us back to this, this life, this environment where we live with Jesus in a, in a pure and connected relationship in paradise. That that's, He wants us to live in innocence like Adam and Eve. And so that's the way it started out in the beginning. That there's a beautiful garden filled with life. There was a direct relationship with God that God visited the garden. They could talk and they could commune and have a relationship. And of course, things went bad when Satan came and, and sin was brought in. He tempted them and they, they, they said, they looked at that, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they said, you know what? I'm going to decide for myself what's, what's good. And so they went against God. And, and they sinned, and creation was cursed because of that. And so that's when creation went from good to bad, and things were broken, and, and the world's full of, of sin and death and, and suffering because of that. And so everything that Jesus went through during the, His trials and His beatings and His, his, his whippings and, and his, the spitting on and the smacking in the face and the crown of thorns and eventually getting nailed to a cross, that everything He went through was done to restore the relationship between people and our Creator that was broken because of sin. To bring us back to the kind of connection that we had with God before Adam and Eve sinned. So that we could be pure and and holy and connected to Him. In fact, God's foretold of the enemy's undoing back in Genesis, back in the garden after they sinned. In Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all wild beasts and all living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head, and you will attack her offspring's heel. That, that he will crush your head, and the, snake will, and the snake will strike at her heel. And so Easter, it's not about chocolate bunnies and colored eggs. It's about a spiritual battle between good and evil. Thousands of years after Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin, the Holy Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness to, to face that old serpent, that old enemy, the head-to-head. But Jesus didn't fall for Satan's temptations the way Adam and Eve did. And it didn't end there. He went on for, with more confrontations. He went on to face the enemy in, in the demon-possessed that he cast out and in the offhand comments of the disciples and the, in the disbelief of the religious leaders who didn't accept Jesus for who said he was, even in the betrayal by one of his closest followers, which eventually led to death uh, by crucifixion, that those were, he was confronting and fighting the enemy, looking for that goal of winning people back to God. 
So Satan came at Jesus with all his seething and all his hatred. And Jesus was mocked and humiliated and tortured and whipped and finally hung on a cross to die. And this was the, the serpent's strike at the heel of the Son of Man. That that was the snake biting at the heel. But Jesus, because he truly is Christ, rose from the dead. He couldn't be kept in a grave because he was who he said he was. And three days later, he defeated sin and death through his sacrifice. And this was the crushing of the serpent's head. And this is such good news for us because the Scripture goes on to tell those who follow Jesus that God will do the same on behalf of everybody who, who obeys him. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will quickly crush Satan under your feet. And so for thousands of years, the Bible or the, the world's been plagued by sin and death. And the Bible is full of genealogies that remind us of that. Of people who died. They were born, they had kids, they died. And years of scientific research has shown us 100% of people die. And, and the good news is that because of what Jesus did, now anybody who wants to can repent of their sin and have new life in Jesus. And put, if they put their faith in Jesus, they can find new life. Romans 5.20 says, For by, if by the transgression of the one man death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness of reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? So what Adam and Eve screwed up and started a trend that, that has hurt everybody, Jesus reversed. So Jesus broke the cross, or broke the curse through his death on the cross. And his, his sacrifice opened the door for sinners to find victory over sin and death by the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians, I'll, I'll read, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the, of the dead came also through a man. And, then, and, and the battle isn't over, obviously, because we still in a, uh, live in a world that's broken. And God is giving us all time to share the good news that Jesus is, has made it possible for us to have new life so that more and more people can put their faith in Jesus. In the meantime, we still have to live in a world that is groaning under the weight of death and suffering. But the, the beachhead of evil has been broken by the cross and the resurrection. It's a Jesus' resurrection, in my mind, is kind of like the storming of the Normandy beaches in World War II. That that broke the enemy. It wasn't the end of the war. There was still a lot of fighting that needed to be done. But once we were through the, the beaches of France, we had a path. And we were going to get victory. If we could make it through the beachhead, then we could get to Berlin. And we did. And if Jesus death and resurrection on the cross is broken through. And we're still fighting to do. We still live in a, in a broken world, but we're going to make it to life because of what Jesus has done. And so victory is, is, is in sight. And just at the right time, Jesus will come back and eliminate the last enemy, just like the Bible tells us, just like everything else he did. And then there will be no more death and no more suffering, and Jesus will make creation good again. I think there's even symbology in when and where Jesus chose to come back to life. Remember, he was buried in the garden. In John 19.41, it says, Now at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb where no one had yet been buried. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus' body there. So he, I think, symbolically was buried in a garden, like the Garden of Eden. It's the same language. 
and that that's where he was resurrected. And he happened to be resurrected on a Sunday. That the third day was a Sunday, which was also the first day that Eden was open for business. When God created the world, he did it in six days and rested on the seventh. And the first day of business was a Sunday. So that's, why the, that's why we have a seven-day week. And the first day of the week is Sunday. And, and so I think Jesus came back to life in a garden on the first day of the week on purpose to remind us of what God has always intended for us. A good life in a good creation with a good relationship with God. And, and like the very beginning, that's what we're aiming for. And, and the same power that spoke light into darkness can speak eternal life into those who believe in Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of glorious knowledge of, the, of God in, face of, in the face of Christ. So the God who said, Let there be light in the beginning can also create life, light in us. So without Jesus, we're lost because of our sin. Like Barabbas, we deserve to have the death that, that because of what we've done. And when we join the statistic of death one day, because 100% of people die, we will be forever cursed and created from our Creator in outer darkness because of sin. And that's what we deserve. But the good news is that Jesus has thrown us a lifeline because of His death and His resurrection to prove who He was, that He became the first fruits of all who believe in Him. So if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and turn from your sin, then you can find a restored relationship with your Creator, a good relationship through His gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And I'll finish with this verse, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. You know what words end that verse? Right after that, he says, do you believe this? And that's the question that you need to ask yourself. Do you believe in Jesus, the resurrection and the life? Because if you do, that even though this body of yours is going to die, your soul can live forever with him. That's the ultimate question. And if you haven't turned to him, you can do it today. And put your trust in Jesus right now and find new life on Sunday morning just like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You are willing to, to, to give Your all that we might be rescued. You didn't have to. You could have just let us get what we deserve, but You love us too much to, to lose us. And so You give us every opportunity You can to turn to You and find Your grace. So God, I pray if there's anybody here who needs that, that they would realize just how valuable this life that you offer is, and just how much joy there is, the way that like the choir sang today, the joy of knowing Jesus and living in a relationship with you, and that we all look forward to that day when you remake creation and everything will be good again. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to do a good job of sharing your good news so more and more people can come to know you and have that peace and joy in the midst of the, the chaos here, and that one day we can all celebrate together in a good creation. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.